Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you once again after a brief week away last week. We thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again, as I said, after a brief week away last week. Apologies for that. We had some scheduling conflicts, but we don't have any scheduling conflicts this week. We are back together again here in your ears in your brain and in your hearts yes you say we as there is a second person on this program oh thank god yes thank uh, god (laughs) this week i am dennis the man who is constantly perplexed by the difficulty of original nes games (laughs) yeah there were some toughies in there you know as much as we might look back on the nes days and think uh that uh, oh they're so simplistic in their style and approach that uh, obviously the gameplay mechanics uh, are all much more simplistic compared to the complex games we have uh, in our contemporary age but uh, no there's some there's some real doozies in there yeah so i mean one of the ones like, for whatever reason i don't know maybe it was recently uh completing breath of the wild that kind of like made me want to go back and play some of the older Zeldas, but you know, my first Zelda game, my first experience with the franchise was uh, Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link on the NES, the original Nintendo Entertainment System. So, um, you know, I, I never beat the game. You know, I've, I've, I've owned it for a long time. It was like a game I used to rent a lot as a child. Like, you know, I was like the ambience of it. I know it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild of the Zelda series because it's so different and people kind of. It's not really what people want in a Zelda game normally, but I still think it's kind of like an interesting game anyways. Like, it's got kind of interesting mechanics and some cool ideas here and there. Mm-hmm. And the side-scrolling thing is kind of neat. It was the first time we got to see a better look at what, you know, what Link... Actually looks like. Actually looks like, yeah, because, you know, the original, the first Zelda, which, again, I'll probably go back to and properly beat as well, which I... Because I never actually have... Basically, what I'm trying to get to is these original Nintendo games, they're so hard. (laughs) Like, they're brutally difficult, Mm -hmm. and they're, like, unrelenting. And it's like, I don't want to say they're unfair, but they ask a lot. And considering these games were meant for children when they first came out, like, you and I, Mm -hmm. we both had NESs. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we were, like, eight, nine years old when we were started playing these games, or, or younger than that even, I guess, like maybe four or five. Like, I think the first time I played uh, Super Mario Brothers, I was, I think I was five years old, maybe, so mm-hmm. things like that. Like, it's meant, I think the demographic was, like, you know, it, like, children initially, so it's kind of like, well, they, they expect that children should be able to play these games, but there's a lot going on. And mechanics-wise, it's like, how would you even know, like, I I don't recall making very much progress in this game as a kid. Like, you know, I have, like, fond memories of, like, some of the music and stuff like that, but that's about it. I'm going back now and actually making an adult effort to be like, okay, I have to plan routes out and stuff like this. But just in in case you've never played the game before, it's, I'll refresh your memory, there's a top-down aspect, like an overworld aspect, where mm-hmm. you have to go from place to place, but once you enter a place, or if you veer off the path, you end up, you know, at risk of, you know, battling some monsters, which means basically being brought into a 2D um, side-scrolling battle view kind of thing, where you have to use your sword and evade and or defeat enemies that are kind of around. 
Uh, similarly, you go to town, you walk through, you talk to people in a 2D fashion, you enter buildings, you get spells from wizards and things like that. Uh, but yeah, every time you, if there's lives, so yeah, normally what we have come to expect from a Zelda game is that you have, you know, your heart meter, which, you know, you gain pieces of heart and or full hearts to inc- extend that. So you end up so normally by the end of the game with like 20 odd, um, full hearts worth of life. So you can take, you know, however many hits sometimes like they get more granular the later the games go. I think like you can have a quarter of a piece of heart taken off. So if you have 20 pieces of heart, that ends up being like, you can get hit like 80 times. So fine. But this game has a health meter and everything like you gain experience by beating enemies. And as you have, like, there's always like the next thing it's like, okay, you need 50 experience to, upgrade this thing you need now you need a hundred to upgrade this thing and it'll always be your health your magic or your attack power and that's it and it's not really super clear what leveling them up does like yeah like leveling up your health like your health meter never grows your magic meter never grows and you eventually do like leveling up your attack for example makes let like you only have to attack things less times like instead Mm -hmm. of five you might need to attack the thing four times for it to die and instead of, you know, taking eight hits, you might be able to take ten now that your level is higher and things like that. So, yeah. But you have lives and, you know, when you die, when your, when your health reaches zero and you die, you use up a whole life, you end up on the screen that you were at, whatever that might be in the 2D realm. Um, you're just taken back there. And then when you're out of lives, and you continue, you start back at the first castle again, like in basically like what I think they consider central Hyrule, which is brutal. <laughs> like if you have like a long trek to get like, because I, I seem to remember at some point, uh, some of the later castles, like you have to go overseas and like, you know, you have to take a raft and you have to do this and that and go through some mountains and, you know, trek and brave some like, you know, whatever terrain and get to a, get to this castle it might take a couple of lives just to get to the castle. But mm-hmm. once you're there, you only have one shot to get through. <laughs> that's insane. So that's just one game. Sure is. I uh I remember uh a couple of years ago I was on a jag of playing my old NES and uh, was playing through Batman Return of the Joker. Oh yeah. A Sunsoft game. Really enjoyable game, but it's not without its challenges and I found myself uh, in this jag. I was making good progress on it. Got all the way to the last boss. But the problem in that game is if you die uh even once, you lose the special weapon you had during that previous turn. And you need a certain special weapon to defeat the last boss in Batman Return of the Joker. So when I got to the last boss and, uh, you know, died, of course, my first time getting to there, lost my special weapon, I was hooped. I was absolutely up the creek because nothing else you have is really going to be of any advantage or help to you in that situation. And... I'm sure any of us from the, uh, uh, who play the original NES, uh, when it was brand new, you know, accepted we got stuck and whatnot, but never quite understood or grasped just how difficult some of those things were. Even, uh, Ninja Gaiden 2 I have in my collection. I don't think I've ever gotten beyond the third level in that thing. Yeah. Um, I would say Ninja Gaiden 
is the closest comparison. Like when people always talk about modern difficult games, one that comes to mind is Dark Souls and like all of the Souls like games. Mm-hmm. I think most recently what was the latest one Ghost of Tsushima, I think was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So those games, they're not unfair, but they are difficult, but the difficulty comes in in a way they're kind of structured very much like levels where like you, you go from the bonfire to get to the next bonfire is basically a level or to get to the bonfire, you know, you have a bonfire right outside the boss and like, you know, then you have to beat the boss. But Dark Souls was basically directly inspired to me, how I see it, by games like Ninja Gaiden where the levels never change. Like there's definitely a path through the level Mm -hmm. and then the boss never really changes. Like there is a pattern to how the bosses go, but getting that pattern is like, holy crap, how do you... Like, you you might have to go through five or six times just to kind of understand what the pattern is. And sometimes pattern changes once they've, you know, been damaged a certain amount and now the pattern reverses or now, you know, now there's extra spikes here and there and that kind of thing that happens. So, yeah, but Ninja Gaiden, I think, is a great example of, like, exactly that. Like, it's not unfair, but it's ruthlessly difficult. And God help you if in some of those games, like Ninja Gaiden, if you go back a screen or two, enemies are going to regenerate. Yes. Yeah, they, be- they do not stay dead in these old NES games. No, it's and oftentimes it's like a one-pixel thing. Like, you cross this one pixel, they're not going to show up again. But if you go back, oh, there they are. Yep. So it's and, and you have to deal with them all over again, and it's a challenge certainly in its own right. Uh, hell, look at the time you and I, experienced uh, uh, platform video game players, uh, spent trying to play through and defeat uh, McKids yeah, or M- NES MC Kids or McKids or yeah, I guess it would have been McKids because Mc- it's it was licensed. It was a McDonald's licensed McDonald's game. video game. Yeah, yeah, not a surprisingly not a bad game, but enjoyable, but. But, like, in those later levels, it was like, what are we even, like... <laughs> the the goal line you have to try and get to is not clear where it is, and there are even some levels with false goal lines. Yes. Where if you cross it, you just restart the level again. And then there's other levels, too, where you might think that some of, like, some me- mechanics in platforming might be new, like upside-down mechanics or things mm-hmm. like that. But no, MC Kids, for example, had that. Like, there were, like... I, I, I distinctly remember there were like things that you would walk past and it would change the gravity. Yep. And you would end up, end up like jumping across the screen and like that's a little bit of a brain twister. Like, oh, I, now jumping brings me down, but the, it has the same jump mechanics, but from the top. So it's like, I can't, huh. Which, especially in that example of MC Kids or Mick Kids, it was never introduced or forewarned that this is coming. You're just dropped right into it and you figure out on the fly. Yeah. Like, you have to figure it out or else, you know, you just waste a life. Absolutely. And if you waste all your lives, then you have to continue. And there's usually some thing that happens when you continue. Like, you actually go back to either a checkpoint or in the most most ruthless examples, you start over. Absolutely. From the very beginning. Yeah. At which point it's like, I'm not playing this again. I'm done. And makes you question the the uh, rationale and use behind that continue anyway. Yeah. Because you might as well just hit reset at that point. But yeah, there are some 
uh, tremendously difficult old NES games. There are some I, I came to later on, uh, or actually got around to later on, where I'd actually defeat and managed to defeat some some games from my my childhood, my youth, uh, like Mega Man Four, for example. I spent an entire afternoon playing through and defeating it one day, conquering it. Yoshi's Cookie. Yeah, I did as well. It might be an obscure title, but I like the puzzle games. So uh, there are some that are possible. Others are just goddamn impossible. Yeah, or very difficult. Like, even within the Mega Man canon, like, some of the Mega Man games are brutal. Oh, yeah. Like, Mega Man 5, I seem to remember being, like, really hard. Uh, And even Mega Man 2, like, it's, you know, doesn't have all the mechanics, but has more than the first one. But the Wily stages in there are like, holy smokes, like, how did people do this back then? And of course, we're talking about you know some difficult stages from old NES games that we remember, and we'd be remiss if we did not mention the speeder bike level from Battletoads. <laughs> yes, the of course. The third level, which I think I've only ever seen one person get past live, uh, right there in front of me, just one time in my life. I've seen that happen. Yeah, same. It wasn't me, and it wasn't you doing it. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> no, I mean. Yeah, it was insane, like, watching that person. It was like, holy crap, how are you doing this? <laughs> it's like, the reaction time is, like, nil. Basically nil. Like, frames worth of reaction time. Yeah. A few frames worth of reaction time. And, and when talking about frames of reaction time, you you might think that these types of things are normally, like, in the realm of, like, speedrunners and things like that. And, you know, you'd be right normally because speedrunners are the ones that ultimately care about things like that because they're the ones that deeply have, like, the the super deep knowledge about, like, frame rules and things like that. Like, for example, like, the some of the frame rules involving how, you know, uh, like, certain uh, clipping and stuff works in the original Super Mario Brothers uh it's very interesting. I mean, it's way above, you know, my pay grade in terms of <laughs> what I can do in video games personally. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, that's just for speedrunning though. And then, like that's not even for just casual gameplay. Like for Battletoads in particular, it's not really a casual game. Like it's not like a game that you can pick up and go, "Yeah, I want to beat it today." It's just like, yeah, you have to be top tier, <laughs> really good at games to do that even. Like, you'll never get past that speed bike level, probably, if, unless you're, like, incredibly good at it. Absolutely. Uh, it's one of the most challenge- challenging stages I can recall on the NES for any NES game. Well, yeah, and I think there's an asterisk there, too. Well, challenging that's without being necessarily unfair or kind of trash and broken. True, too. Because then there's other games that are super difficult that, like, like the Silver Surfer, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm not, like, I love the music in the game. I think, you know, Tim Fallen did a great job, but, like, the mechanics are kind of not fun. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. the hitbox is kind of unclear on your character, and, like, it, the hitboxes of all the environments and all the enemies and enemy fire are also unclear. It's like, well, what am I, what am I supposed to be avoiding here? Like, like, there's some times where you're, like, Oh, that doesn't look like it should kill me. Oh, it killed me. And also, it's one-hit kills. Same thing with Captain Planet. Captain Planet's another great example. Like, the Captain Planet game for NES was... Garbage. Garbage. Hot garbage. (laughs) 
not fun. No, the, you can go through any stage. Uh, there's a stage select at uh, the home screen. Go through any stage. You're not getting very far. You're maybe making it five to ten seconds into each stage before there's some unavoidable object that will collide with you, and it is, similar to Silver Surfer, one-hit kills. Yeah. Despite your best efforts, you're <laughs> going to die and not progress too terribly far in the game. So, uh yeah, old games, uh, doozies aplenty, uh, challenges aplenty as well. Yeah. But, uh, they had, you know, some of them had their certain charms. You know, there were some, some, you know, kitsch factors to things as well. Like as, you know, we mentioned the Mick Kids game was very much of the era. Um, you wouldn't see a McDonald's video, licensed video game nowadays, I think. Probably not. And, uh, you know, so some things very much stay in their era, but every so often, uh, something will escape eras and uh, come forward in time and try to be contemporary, try to be of the now, even though it's from the way back when, which leads us into our first of two ludicrous lead-offs. And perhaps you have heard uh, your parents, or in whatever your situation might be, maybe grandparents talk about uh, something from the 70s they had, or you've seen it as a commercial or in a documentary, perhaps in some sort of history book at school, a reference made to something called a pet rock. Yeah. I think at this point it's fair to say grandparents, you know, depending on, well, if you're a younger listener, well, I say younger listener, bear in mind, we are old millennials on this program, so. And we feel it every day in our bones. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Um, you, you might be a Gen Z young adult at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you might have, you might, I mean, also, Pet Rock might be a total who knows at this point to you, but ask your parents and or grandparents about it. They'll probably be able to tell you something. It was a fad from the 70s. Perhaps you're, uh, you have a family member who had one back then, but they were a fad in the 70s that sound as stupid as uh, the name might imply, because it was uh, a product that sold you, the consumer, a Pet Rock. Yep. You would pay money, hard-earned dollary dues, to then have a rock. Yep. But it was a pet rock. Yeah. But it did nothing. That's correct. You did not have to feed it. Yep. Didn't have to water it. Yeah. I, it was sort of, I think it was sort of like a little bit of like performance art kind of, you know, joke. Like it, it wasn't a totally serious thing, but... It was sort of like a joke at like an international level that a lot of people got. And yeah, but at the end of the day, you were buying a rock and buying a rock from your, you know, big box retailer for some amount of money, <laughs> you know, a rock, a thing that you could just get from outside <laughs> somewhere when, you know, walking a trail or something, mm-hmm. a rock, you'd be paying money for it. And at this point, you might be thinking, that's ridiculous. Why would anyone do that? Well, sometimes it's, you know, fads are a weird thing. And sometimes it's, you know, very easy to get whipped into the fervor of a fad. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, who among us hasn't, uh, I mean, of us older millennials, who among us didn't get caught up in the pog craze from the 90s? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I had a lot of pogs. 
I had Pog the game even. Like, you know, like, I know lots of people that used to have lots of Pogs. I, I had a whole bunch of NHL player Pogs. Yeah. So I, I had some of those. I had some of the Simpsons Pogs actually. Cool. Uh, a lot of them. But when you look back, it's like, it's just a stupid collectible. It's garbage. Like, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. They're little circle pictures of things. And the game that was surrounding Pogs was like just trash. Like you would just throw a thing onto a pile and all the ones that flip over, you get to quote unquote keep. And at the end of the game, when the pile is all gone, the person with more wins the game. It's pretty much like caveman the game. Like <laughs> it, it felt like a new version of, you know, Jack's. Yeah. You know, what, uh, perhaps our, our then grandparents may have played on the schoolyard back in the, you know, thirties, forties, fifties. Or yeah. you bounce a ball up and see how many jacks you can grab all the balls in the air. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just a newer version of that, just uh, slightly more licensed. Yes, more licensed, more varied in terms of artwork that you might see. Frankly, like, a lot of the art was cool. Like, they would have, like, foil designs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of it was interesting, but it, at the end of the day, it was, like, just kind of, like, more garbage that you, <laughs> that you would end up in your parents' basement one day when you move out. That they basically gladly give you, then you have you have to find a place in your basement eventually. <laughs> so, so that's that's all it is, and that's ultimately all the pet rock was as well. But why are we talking about these fads and pet rocks and things? Pet rocks in particular, are they coming back? Has someone you know got the twenty first century license for it? I I don't know if they've gotten the the new twenty first century license for it, but certainly they're doing a twenty first century version of a pet rock uh, with the new fad here in the twenty first century, the year uh, the year twenty twenty one, the year of our dark lord, as he has his reign continues. Uh, We've spoken many, many times, perhaps too many times, but things to talk about on this program of NFTs, the non-fungible tokens, the the digital sensation that has swept the nation and just now has its place, hasn't gone away, we just haven't spoken about it for several weeks here, but a new, a new form, I don't, well, not new form, but a new thing of NFTs, new product being sold in the form of NFTs is now available, and it's called Etherrock. And it's literally clip art images of rocks. Yeah. And actually, when you mention clip art, that's another thing where it's like, that might actually not be a term that makes sense to certain younger people these days either. Mm-hmm. I mean, clip art was pretty much, you know, a staple of computer class when we were in school. Uh, because yes, they had computer classes. The specific classes for computers, <laughs> just learning how to use a computer back then when we were in... And all the software programs. Yeah, which usually meant open up, you know, Microsoft Publisher and... Microsoft Word, even. Yeah, Microsoft Word and, you know, or the Internet Explorer and or front page if you wanted to make a website or something Ooh. like that. Like, yeah, so we're going back to the late 90s, but... um Clip art was very kind of like a common thing then, right? So I don't know if clip art's super common now in this age of like everything is just kind of like on the web and, you know, everything is like animated GIFs and, you know, Giphy and memes and things like that. So, um, yeah, 
<laughs> clip art itself might be like an old term. I, I think it very much is. I don't know how prominent a place it plays in uh, new versions of Microsoft Word or even variations thereof. I mean, if you don't have Microsoft Word, there's LibreOffice, there's uh, various other desktop uh, publishing platforms. Uh, you can even use web-based ones. There are services like Canva if you need to do some design work, uh, which certainly does not have clip art. No. better things. Better, modern, you know, more contemporary design things. Yeah, like icon sets and, you know, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> Which have kind of ultimately, or even emojis if you want to, like, just get silly about things. But, yeah, not clip art. Not clip art, but Etherrock, uh, this NFT set that's for sale is literally just images of clip art rocks in different shades and hues of browns and grays. Well, it's the same clip art rock, just... With a couple of slight variations yes. every time. Yes, uh, in terms of color. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's uh, these clip art rocks, these ether rocks, are being sold now as NFTs for the low, low price of $272,679. Yeah, so... um that's a thing. Now, these aren't necessarily <laughs> brand new. Uh, these have been on the web and circulating since 2017 when they were put up by an anonymous developer uh, who did it for some reason. Um, but I guess the idea behind them is that there's only 100 of them. There's a limited set, and uh, each new rock gets more and more expensive as other ones come off the market and are purchased. Because people have been buying these. Because this is the dark time we live in, where people and their money are so easily separated. Yes. I, for some reason, if you put something or label it as a, as an NFT, perhaps something crypto, something blockchain related, people will go gaga and seem to lose their better, more uh, critical second thought or uh, better sense of themselves. Well, the people who have the money anyways, like we live in this weird time where... People with disposable income are wasting it on stupid bullshit like this. <laughs> like, this is garbage. You can download that image for free. What's the benefit of owning an NFT of it? Who cares? I Like, am I truly an old man that doesn't understand? What is this? <laughs> there is something about NFTs where it seems to have changed our perception of or changed people's perception of value and wealth and worth and uh, so quickly, so, so quickly. It's really only been this year since NFTs have really shot to prominence in uh, the more mainstream uh, sense uh, that people will dole out ridiculous sums of money for pieces of code that don't do anything. Yeah, that provide no real meaningful actual value to planet Earth and humanity on the whole. And also, it's not as though they were spending money on a true collectible like the Mona Lisa or a piece of art or some rare automobile, which you could then turn around and sell most likely for profit down the road. But the bananas thing I think about NFTs is you still could turn around and sell them, which I guess is like the thing, but they're just digital assets. Mm-hmm. Like you're just buying and selling digital files. Like... <laughs> I'll take a step back and say, yes, for actual artists, I understand how this could be really powerful and very interesting. That does provide value, where if you're an artist and you're commissioning works and you want to make sure that, you know, 
people have a way of verifying that they're the one that bought the work. This is perfect for that. Like if you're, if you don't want to go through a traditional means of like, if you work in digital mediums and you're not necessarily a, uh, like a traditional painter and your art's not going to end up in a gallery somewhere. Perfect. Great way of doing that. Like, okay, this is a commissioned work from X artist of, you know, whatever, some fan art or something. Who knows? Any, any kind of art. Great. It's, it's a digital work. I have a certificate of authenticity that proves that I'm the one that bought it. And if I sell it, that this certificate goes to someone and I could potentially make a profit on it. That makes sense. But then you see displays like this where it's like, this is literally just bullshit that someone threw together. Almost, I would say it sounds like it's a joke. And then people spend money as a joke. Like, what kind of nihilistic circle have we created with all of this? (laughs) And where's it going to go? I mean, other than the downward spiral that seems to be continuing, that that has started and and continues on, what is the value of things? Yeah. If if something that is so nothing is then assigned a worth of several hundred thousands of dollars, what what is what is a life-saving medicine worth? Yeah. Billions or nothing. Yeah, or nothing. I mean, pennies? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> it's it's insane. And, and maybe maybe we're wrong for thinking about it in such dark terms, but how else can you think about things like this? People are buying literal pictures of stupid clip art bullshit for $270,000. Why? Beyond the uh, simply saying they can, I have no idea. Uh, Shoshana Wodinsky, who, who brought this story to us for Gizmodo uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, says that over the course of uh, a period of two weeks in August, from you know early to mid-August, uh, that was a period when uh, angel investor turned crypto personality Gary uh, Vaynerchuk tweeted about Etherrock as one of the, quote, free 2019 NFT projects to keep an eye on over the next decade. And almost immediately after that, uh, people with too much money and not enough sense started paying for some of these Etherrock NFTs where a single rock uh, started going or went for 1.2 Ether, which at the time was roughly 3,700 US. That price then jumped to 32 Ether, which was roughly 99,000 US dollars, jumping all the way up to 80 Ether, uh, which was roughly 250,000 US dollars for one of these Ether rocks. Uh, and over the course of a day prior to Shoshana Wodinsky publishing this article on Gizmodo, said that people had uh, plopped down a, a total of 664,000 US dollars on these Etherrock NFT collectible bullshit things. I'm adding the bullshit part. Yeah. It was implied, though. Yeah. Heavily. Yeah. Uh, so some people have admitted to making these purchases on Twitter. Uh, one person saying about their $46,300 purchase of an Etherrock, quote, as we get into an age of digital collectibles being one of the earliest forms of art and the first thing to first, uh, in the first do something, uh, gives them First to do something gives them provenance that is valuable. Uh, the pet rocks uh, present the perfect shock value. Value It's so stupid that it's perfect. Fate loves irony. 
Another buyer who shelled out 25000 for one of these these rocks told Motherboard that uh, these purchases were either the stupidest or most incredible, de- incredible decision of our lives. Going on to add that uh, they thought the concept was dumb at first, but, quote, FOMO kicked in. Yeah. End quote. And uh, now they spent $25,000 on a, an NFT of a rock. <sighs> Yeah. I mean, I see where they're coming from. Like, art collectors are, you know, have always been looking for, you know, the potential next big thing. Like, when Andy Warhol first was coming out with all of his stuff, people criticized him as well, but now they're kind of iconic. Like, the, even though a lot of them were just colorized photos tiled on, you know, screens, or like just basically like, pictures of things like the set, the Campbell soup can mm-hmm. or like the Marilyn Monroe thing, like not really a lot of like skill went into them, but they're striking and you know, fine. Like they have become iconic. I don't know if they would have become iconic if people didn't pay them any mind, but they've become iconic over time. And if you have a Warhol original, I'm sure you could make bank selling it. So I, I get it, but is this the same type of thing? Like, yeah, you've you've made it exclusive saying, oh, there's only going to be a hundred of these rocks out. But, like, there's literally nothing stopping someone, like, anyone, like, at least with, you know, pictures of, like, like, pr- like, if you think of people who make a copy of this and save it to their desktop without buying it as maybe the equivalent of having a print in terms of, like, the art analog, for example, um... You're not making any money off of that, and you can't make any money off that, and you can't really stop people from doing that. Like, if this exists online somewhere, which it currently does, because you get to see a a, a GIF or a, a JPEG or whatever of, like, the previous ones that have sold on this exchange site, there's nothing stopping me from just making my own copy, getting it for free, because that's how digital files work. Yeah, some people don't seem to understand that, or care, or perhaps the the image itself is not the real value. The value is in the, the blockchain receipt. Yeah, to show their ownership of this digital asset. Sure, other people can you know copy paste to their desktop, whatever else, but they aren't the true you know owners of the original. Here, I have all these characters that demonstrate. I am the one true owner of this thing. Right, which I guess it goes back to like the discussion of a, you know, a little bit a little while back about I guess general high-level collecting as well. How I'm just going to go out and say people who are collectors at that level are a bit crazy. Oh, certainly. Like and this is just the newest form of that, unfortunately. But it because we're seeing it as like connected to all of this broy new technology there just seems to be an extra level of nihilism associated with it for some reason in my head. And, and a certain level of carelessness, too. Yeah. That uh, perhaps people who are coming into money at younger ages, perhaps they are uh, engineers, uh, very tech-minded people who have some sort of company that gets bought out, goes public, whatever the case might be, just come into a lot of money really quickly, either don't have a great sense of it or don't know what to do with it or just plain don't care. Yeah. Like, looking to people like Musk for 
inspiration, you know, who basically are like, you know, shit lords on the or edge lords on the internet, mm-hmm. like, you know, <laughs> it's like great. So everyone can just do that now. Everyone can become a tech billionaire and just become, you know, pretty much like just nihilistic about everything and great. That's just the norm. Anyways, don't want to get too deep in this discussion now. It's a little, it's getting a little bit, um, bad. So <laughs> it's a little long in the tooth. So yeah. as much as you try and wrap your brain around the, uh, uh, idea and concept of <laughs> NFTs and the money that they are going for, ultimately, uh, don't feel bad if, if you cannot, because, uh, Dennis and I here cannot and many others cannot because, uh, I, I don't know how one could wrap their brain all around it and the sudden increase and decrease and just skewing in the sense of value of things. But it is, it's those sorts of instances that, uh, can make the other, uh, uh, good work that perhaps some scientists are doing just fall by the wayside, maybe not get the attention that uh, it deserves, uh, because, uh, tech is, uh, the new god that people worship at, but science still is, uh, what will drive, uh, the world and innovation in, in a whole lot of ways, possibly for the good of humanity, poss- possibly for the ridiculous of humanity, possibly to the extinction of humanity. Who knows? <laughs> But we have a, a story here that uh, we haven't had in a while. It's a science goes crazy story. Yep. That uh, you may have heard about. Good chance you didn't, though. And we are going to bring it to you. Uh, it's a story that actually kind of ties back to something, to a similar science goes crazy story we had a couple of years ago on this program about scientists developing something called organoids. Uh, it's a small, miniature, not fully realized version of an organ. And at the time... A couple of years ago, we first brought you one of these stories. The scientists were developing a brain organoid, and they had made a brain. It had very simple electrical uh, conductivity. It uh, uh, could basically show that it was a proof of concept. Yeah. Well, a couple of years have gone on, and now we have a new brain organoid that has been developed, and it is, uh, it's been developed at the University Hospital in Dusseldorf, and it's a brain organoid again, but this brain has developed primitive eyes. Yeah. So, and it looks disgusting, by the way. We link to the articles and the research paper on our website of thearcadeshow.com. Feels good. Yeah, feels good to do that in person. Yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so, so if you see an image, if even if you don't want to read the whole article, you just want to see what this is so you have an idea and maybe pass it along to someone and gross them out in for their day. Cool. Totally worth it. Uh, but it looks like uh, a white, spongy mass of protein, almost like an egg white, with blueberries stuck in there. Yeah. Or like one of those... Or uh, raisins or something. Raisins. Even. Or almost one of those uh, licensed ice cream pops you get from a uh, an ice cream truck going down the street. That you open it up and it just never looks like the character it's supposed to. Yeah, but it's exactly. Got gumball eyes and <laughs> they're just totally out of place. Yeah, and they just look like you know, basically like when you see things like in um, things that were spontaneously brought into existence, maybe incorrectly or something, and they're just like <laughs> kill me. <laughs> that type of thing. Yes, exactly. So, uh, but these primitive eyes that, uh, were developed, uh, they kind of work. They can, uh, react to light. And, uh, 
they were developed, these mini brains or brain organoids, uh, were developed through the use of, uh, uh stem cells, I believe. Yeah, pluripotent stem cells. Yes. So these are stem cells that can be changed into any other kind of cell. Uh, I don't believe the ethical questions surround stem cells these days as they used to. Uh, scientists have found ways to develop stem cells for use in laboratories that do not need to come from human embryos or anything of that nature. Yeah, nothing super controversial anymore, thankfully. Thank, thank God indeed, but here we are. We're developing brains. Yeah, that, now we're crossing back into the controversial <laughs> territory. Um, we're assured that these things are not conscious, despite the fact that they clearly respond to light stimulus. Yeah, which is, huh, that's the next step. I mean, we had the first brain organoid that was proof of concept. Again, it just looked like a white flash, you know, fleshy mass, like an egg protein if you whipped up or cooked it in the microwave or something. Looked like that. Now we got this. He's got some some eyeballs going, or primitive eyeballs going on, as Jay, uh, who, I'm not even going to attempt the last name of the uh, biologist who's quoted in the article here from Isaac Schultz at Gizmodo, but I'll say Jay, who's a biologist at the University Hospital of Dusseldorf and a co-author on this paper, uh, said in a press release about this announcement, quote, our work highlights the remarkable ability of brain organoids to generate primitive sensory structures that are light sensitive and harbor cell types similar to those found in the body. These organoids can help to study brain eye interactions during embryo development, model cognitive, uh, cognitional retinal disorders, yeah, congenital retinal congenital, disorders, sorry, yes. and generate uh, patient-specific retinal cell types for personalized drug testing and transplantation therapies, end quote. I believe the guy's name is Jay uh, Gopala Krishnan. Okay. Um, I've had more time to read it while you were reading that, but uh, yeah, so I guess to help in the embryonic development of humans, maybe for earlier screening of things, maybe... They'll have an idea, because of these organoids, what to look for and have an idea of how things develop in the human embryo as uh, life is forming. Yeah, um, though, again, we're getting, if they're looking at how things are forming with the intention of intervention, perhaps, are we again getting into Gattaca territory? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, maybe in a less elegant future. <laughs> In the less elegant today than uh, the elegant future we saw. In the darkest timeline that people are, <laughs> like to refer to now as. Uh, on the first day of this team's research, the stem cells were a disconnected bunch of dots, but by day, day 10, they formed a neurosphere, which is a cluster of cellular tissue. By the end of a month, the organoid had formed a prior primordial eye field, or a group of two retinal cells that lay the foreground for more complex eye structures. And at the two-month mark, full optic vesicles had formed, which are the foundation of eyes and are connected to the brain. So, all right, so it takes about two months to, to form basic eye structure in this brain organoid. And apparently a little over 70% of these organoids, these brain organoids that this team generated, did form optic cups. And the structures formed electrically active new uh, networks of neurons that were light-sensitive uh, the optic cups in these organoids had uh, lens and corneal cells as well, so they're not just they're they're not just taking pictures of egg whites with you know 
you know, blueberries, blueberries in them and saying, oh yeah, it's responding to light. It's like, no, <laughs> apparently they are developing. My question is, how much further are they going to develop? Like, what is, what's the end game of all this? Well, for now, I believe the, the scientists are uh, using these developments of the organoids with the basic eye structures to uh, study the implications of eye disease and better understand how the brain and eye structures will talk to each other in the embryo, but we'll go from there. Yeah. Yeah, and see where it all goes. We don't know, but it's, uh yeah, we can develop not just, you know, very basic brain structures in the lab now. Now we can develop uh, brain and basic eye structures. Yay! Great. So combine this with the, uh, I'm sure, the video everyone saw of the uh, uh, Boston Dynamics uh, robot doing the parkour <laughs> course, and uh, who doesn't feel like we're all just headed towards uh, a giant cataclysmic apocalypse? Yay, Oblivion! <laughs> Woo! Better start eating. <laughs> oh, man. So now that we've thoroughly depressed you... Yeah, let's... Uh, uh, on In the uh, medical science fields and the uh, economic fields, let's get back to video games here. Yeah, the, the things that, you know, we're maybe more... I want to say qualified to talk about. I mean, yes, but qualification has never really stopped anyone from talking about anything. That's true. Uh yeah, just look at all of social media. Anyways, um, <laughs> so, uh, well, remember when Fortnite was the new hotness and mm-hmm. then everyone and their dog who had a video game that, you know, had an online component all of a sudden was adding a battle royale mode? Yes. Sort of because of it? I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I understand that, you know, PUBG was before Fortnite and stuff, but let's be real. Fortnite's the one that got super popular and everyone plays. It's true. So... Yeah, that was a thing, but now the new hotness that seems to, you know, be what everyone, all the kids are playing now, or maybe at least they were last I checked, was Among Us. You know, the the game where you kind of have to figure out who the imposter is. It's basically like the online phone version of what would, like, I guess the Resistance or some kind of, like, classic board game like that where Mm -hmm. you have to kind of, like, suss out who someone... Like who's the who's the who's the agent here? Who's like the the imposters? They call it in Among Us. Like we're all crew, but like someone people keep dying and why and who's killing them and that type of thing. Super popular game. It can be fun if you're playing it with the right group of people. I think, or you know, if you just if you're one of those people who I don't understand who like to just kind of jump online with randos and just have at it. I'm I'm told that's fun too. Not really for me, but yeah. More power to you. Yeah, more power to you, but yeah, it's uh it's the new thing. And clearly whenever there's a new thing, companies that like to make money try to incorporate the new thing into their things. So now in like this in an almost like unbelievable act of like what are you doing? <laughs> Fortnite uh or I should say uh Epic Games has now introduced an Among Us like imposter mode into Fortnite. It's literally called Fortnite Imposters and sees 10 players pitted in a submarine in a survival scenario where eight of them are just given regular tasks to perform and the other two players are the agents who will uh, lie, cheat, steal, backstab, and uh, do whatever they can to kill the other players. Uh, so, yeah. 
or sorry, the imposters uh, are, you know, there's the two imposters. The the agents are the regular characters doing the menial jobs, yada, 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 tending to engines, you know, maybe in the kitchen, whatever the case might be, navigation. You know, it's in a submarine, in an enclosed environment, so totally different than the space station of Among Us. Yeah, totally different. Totally different. So, yeah, this came down the pipeline, and I don't think Epic Games was really ready for the backlash that would come from this, that uh, the internet seemed to ha- hold for the fact that Epic Games was being, I want to say, so blatant in ripping off another popular concept. I mean, they're called imposters in Among Us, so the fact that you're calling your mode imposter mode is bananas. You're straight up stealing. And literally still, the, the, the two characters who have to go kill everyone else in this are also called imposters. Yeah. Exactly. You're stealing the idea. Like it's, you're just taking among us and putting it in your game. Call it at least something else. Like call them like, like, saboteurs or something like Mm -hmm. something else like not imposters at least make an effort yeah do like isn't there something in Fortnite lore that can be used instead like i don't know that's a good question that's a good point like i don't know enough about Fortnite. i'll admit i don't think i've even played it a single time but surely like enough people play it and there's enough to the game where you might have you know something you can draw from right uh, quite possibly, or invent new canon that would explain all this. Yeah. You know, there's that as well. Epic Games has many billions of dollars at its disposal. At its disposal, It can hire more writers to develop these modes. Obviously, it hired more artists, more developers, more everything to develop the Fortnite Imposters mode. So hire some creative people to put a new spin on it, to make it seem like it's new and unique to you, as opposed to just outright knocking off Indersloth in their game Among Us. Uh... Now, that being said, there's not really anything Innersloth and the developers of Among Us can do in this situation. They don't really have any sort of trademark. They don't have any sort of copyright or patent on the game mechanics uh, or the even concept of gameplay in Among Us. It's a social deduction game, and as Dennis pointed out too, there's been board game examples of this previously as well. Yeah, like for like the last, like I think the Resistance is like, 15 years old or something, maybe older than that. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's ton like, this whole mechanic is not, especially in board games, like the, the social deduction aspect or like the, the, uh, the hidden spy type aspect. Like, I mean, even there's other games out there too, like Secret Hitler and there, there's also a game called Saboteur and like the whole thing of just trying to figure out like, hey, who is the person here that's trying to sabotage everything? That's not new, so yeah, they 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 can't they can't copyright that because it's already. I would say it's probably prior knowledge, public domain, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. So that's unfortunate, but their characters are called imposters. Like that's their thing. So it's very bananas that Epic Games, a company who like, yeah, I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> maybe this is just their pattern because there was a little bit of backlash when Fortnite did come out as being just a ripoff of uh, PUBG, Bla- uh, PUBG 
right? There, there was because uh, uh, PUBG was doing the the battle royale style gameplay mechanic, uh, and I think was uh, in talks with Epic Games for some kind of collaboration because previously Fortnite, prior to being a battle royale game, was a fort building mechanic. Yeah, and that's it. It, yeah, it literally was just uh, about resources and building and construction, and and if something happens, you build anew. Uh, but then Epic Games worked with uh, players unknown about or or regarding uh, battlegrounds, the the battle royale game. Saw something was there, and then they went off, and instead of making just a, a more realistic war shooter, they went in the opposite direction, made something super bright and cartoony that was free, as opposed to PUBG's pay model. And had a huge hit on their hands and wound up making billions of dollars. Yeah. So there's some hubris going on here. Yeah, it's like, so they, they take that and become successful with it. Now they take this and theoretically will become successful with it. But thankfully for Innersloth, Among Us has kind of already picked up enough legs that people, or the kids as it were, have already kind of like, it's it's got a lot of saturation already. So people are just going to look at it and go... Oh, you're just ripping off Among Us, though. Uh, I'll just... Hopefully they're going to go back and go, eh, I'm fine with just Among Us. And supporting uh, uh, Among Us and also Innersloth and the people who have worked on on Among Us for the last few years. Yeah. Why Epic Games couldn't do some sort of partnership with Innersloth, bring that mechanic in, and then also bring the uh, character models in or anything like that? Don't know. Yeah. Wouldn't that have, that have been an easier approach than build your own from scratch? Well, I don't, I don't know about easier, but it's uh, the build your own from scratch type thing cer- certainly seems skeezier. It sure does. Yeah. So uh, it's out now, Fortnite Imposters, not to be confused with Among Us, which has imposters. You play as imposters, but you also play as imposters in Fortnite Imposters, which itself is an imposter. Yeah, exactly. Very meta. Ooh. We're through the looking glass, people. Yeah, we're through the looking glass here, people. Uh, <laughs> so that game is out now, Fortnite Imposters is, but uh, looking ahead to the fall, when it seems like we're going to have a more traditional uh, fall for video game releases with uh, a bunch of big titles and everyone trying to clamor and get their titles out ahead of Christmas in the big Christmas shopping season. And they're all also going to be ripoffs of Among Us. Uh, fingers crossed, we hope. <laughs> That's not true, by the way. I'm just, I'm just being funny. In quotation marks, funny. Made me chuckle. Yes. That's as far as it went. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, how most humor goes, unfortunately. To Mike, and then to death. Wait, uh, what? <laughs> Sounds like you're leaving. Sounds like the death is following me. (laughs) The truth took a dark turn. Yes, you are the Grim Reaper of jokes. Uh. (laughs) You're welcome. Consider the editing process. Yes. (laughs) That joke didn't work. Scythe. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. Next. Uh, but com- speaking of companies that know how to make money, Activision Blizzard has a cash cow every year in the form of Call of Duty, uh, and they this week announced first details about their release in the fall this year of the new Call of Duty game. It is developed by Sledgehammer Studios. It is called Call of Duty 
Vanguard, and instead of uh, uh, focusing on future warfare or even uh, uh, near future warfare or yeah. even contemporary warfare. Yeah, you have to suss out who an imposter is. Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> okay, I'm done with this now. That's not what it is. <laughs> Sorry. Vanguards, Call of Duty Vanguards, yes. not based on warfare in the future or anything like no. that. Uh, they're looking to the past and instead going back to uh, 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 actually some warfare we haven't seen before. Uh, World War II uh, will be adapted into a video game. It didn't I, I'm impressed. Wow. No one's mined that field before. So yeah, who? <laughs> Good on them. You know, tapping some for- uh, untread ground. Yeah. <laughs> The original wasn't the first Call of Duty game a World War Two battle game, like the very first thing called Call of Duty. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, and in I, between, I, in the last twenty years, they've had several World War Two based games. Yeah, not to mention, you know, entire franchises based on World War Two speculative alternate history, like Wolfenstein, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, but yeah, classic World War Two. Can't go wrong with that, I guess. Maybe they figure uh, America just needs a pick-me-up. Uh, America's, you know, the psyche of the American population isn't uh, maybe in the best uh, uh, state at the moment, so they need a real pick-me-up. So, uh, reminding them of uh, one of their last great successes, <laughs> defeating Hitler in World War II. Yes, you know, along with the British and, you know, Canadians and all them. And as the well. Russians, too. And the Russians as well. Yeah. Yeah, despite the fact that I think they're not on great terms with Russia right now. No one is. <laughs> yes. I mean, ever since Catherine the Great, you know, it's been all down. <laughs> anyway. Uh, really burned no. a lot of bridges. <laughs> but, so Call of Duty Vanguard, uh, the first game ever based on World War II, comes out November 5th, uh, 2021 for the PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox X, Xbox S, PC, uh, uh and, and I believe that's all systems. Uh, no Switch mentioned. It's just too intense. Um, you know, the Switch likes to focus on the here and now. It doesn't want uh, games focused on 70 years ago. You know, it's for, it's a forward-looking device. Yes. It's also maybe one that sees how overdone World War II is in terms <laughs> of the video game canon. I don't know. Uh, so there's, uh, it seems like based on the uh, announcement trailer, there's four, uh, campaigns or four fronts in the war. There's the, uh, Eastern Front, the Western Front, uh, Battle of the Pacific and Battle in the, in North Africa. Uh, so, I mean, funny thing is, each of those campaigns of war or those theaters of war have had specific games and if not specific franchises made about them as well. Yeah, they all have. To death. So... All right, um, Call of Duty. I uh, tread in some uh, well-tread ground. Uh, you may need to find some other uh, conflicts from the past to mine for uh, future titles. But speaking of treading well-tread ground, <laughs> um, apparently, I mean, when it first came out, if you would have said this to me, I would have said, "What are you crazy?" But apparently, Skyrim is the gift that keeps on giving for Bethesda. And I guess now Microsoft, as they own mm-hmm. the franchise, but, well, the franchise that Skyrim belongs to. Skyrim itself is not a franchise. It's Skyrim, a game. Skyrim it's is a title. The, Skyrim is the fifth game in the Elder Scrolls franchise. So Fifth and last. Uh, <laughs> <we're>... <laughs> 
<laughs> there will never be another one because they keep re-releasing the damn game over and over again. Yes, all the energy and effort that would normally go into making Elder Scrolls 6 just keep, keeps going into uh, fancying up and making and doing remakes and re-releases of uh, Skyrim, Elder Scrolls 5. Yeah, so as of November 11th, 2021, Skyrim will be 10 years old. Because it initially released on 11.11.11, there was a big campaign around it, you know, whatever. I remember that. I got the game back when it came out. I got it for Christmas that year. I've almost been playing Skyrim for 10 years, I guess. Not actively <laughs> all the time, but yeah. It's been a part of your life, yeah. off and on for 10 years. Yeah. So, is it a great game? Yes. Have I put a lot of time into it? Yes. Will I buy it again? Probably not. Mm-hmm. 10th Anniversary Edition, again, coming out November 11th, 2021. This 10th Anniversary Edition will include uh, 10 years' worth of content, basically everything that has been released, uh, as well as the base game of Skyrim will be in this. But one new feature that's being added is a free fishing mechanic. Okay, fine, I'll buy it again. Aha! <laughs> Everyone knows Dennis's weak spot is a free fishing mechanic. <laughs> Well, when you put it that way, though, it's not a free fishing mechanic. Because you're having to pay for the game. Because you have to buy the game just to get this this stupid new mechanic. So, no. I mean, nothing's truly free in this world, so let this be another example of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But if you already own Skyrim Special Edition, there will be an upgrade path to the Anniversary Edition, but you'll have to pay for that. (laughs) I mean, I do own Special Edition, yes. (laughs) But... And it, so the anniversary edition is behind a paywall down that path. Yeah, I'm 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 done. That's no for me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for folks who just really want Skyrim on next gen consoles, there will be a free next gen upgrade coming to all players. Uh, this tenth anniversary edition coming out, uh, I believe, on PS4, PS5, uh, Xbox One, Xbox S. Oh, well, it came out. Yeah, probably coming out on the Xbox One and Xbox X slash S as well, probably Switch. Um, they haven't fully announced the official consoles, but I'd imagine it's literally everything. Yeah, that seems, it, That's Bethesda's approach. Yeah, because it has been on everything. Yeah. There I mean, you go. Everything for the past 10 years has had Skyrim on it. I even think it came out on my phone. <laughs> Your phone, really? Y- yes. <laughs> He says making an inside joke that literally only two of them are aware of in this moment because my phone is rather old. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be on my phone, perhaps. Not the humble brag or anything, but my phone is not an old phone. (laughs) No, my phone is a very old phone. Yes. (laughs) But, uh. And I accept that fact. Yes, and that's fair enough. Um. Yeah. Part of me just wonders, it's like, do they keep doing this just to keep the Elder Scrolls in people's minds so it's not a total surprise and shock and, like, a blast from the past when they finally do release Elder Scrolls Six? Good question. Because, uh, like, I was looking at the timelines of things, and the time between Elder Scrolls Two Arena and Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind was eight years, but the time between Morrowind and Oblivion which is the fourth Elder Scrolls game, I think was four years. And then the time between uh, Oblivion and Skyrim was five years. So, like, for the last three or four, 
where they've been using the, uh, I think it's called the creation engine. It's been, you know, three, four years each, or at most five between games until Skyrim. And now it's been 10, which is the most of any. So our, like, I guess a decade between things would be enough to kind of like make people maybe forget or whatever. But I don't know. It really uh, uh, leads to the question being asked of what the hell's the hold up here? Yeah, exactly. Now, granted, Elder Scrolls Six is going to be a very large game. It's going to be very large. They've said that they've been kind of not starting from scratch necessarily, but retooling a lot of aspects of their game engine, which is, you know, some people would say that's a good thing because it's been just kind of like patchwork piece-by-piece upgraded since Morrowind, which is like a fifth... Well, it's like almost a 20-year-old game at this point. So a 20-year-old game engine for a modern game maybe doesn't... Maybe it's not a great look. Uh, So I wouldn't be surprised if they've been putting time into that. But still, 10 years is a long time. We're starting to get into Duke Nukem Forever territory. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, with Duke Nukem Forever, there were legal issues, uh, surrounding that title and the development studio as well. Yeah. Uh, Bethesda has no such hang-ups. No, they're- Beating them. They're, they have a clear path towards finishing. Like, they, unless, of course, there actually is, like, a lot of developer turnover internally or something, and it's just an awful place to work, who knows? That's true. Nothing uh, would be surprising uh, in these days. The more you really hear about uh, how some of the bigger studios conduct themselves, um, they're horrible places. Yeah, they're horrible places run by awful people. Yes, who should not be put in charge, but they are in charge and they help make it horrible. Yep. Just every all the way around for everyone. Yeah. So... Perhaps there's that. We haven't heard anything to that extent. Uh, we're not discounting it as a possibility one way or the other, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, Elder Scrolls 10th Anniversary Edition coming out this fall. Again, 11 11 21, uh, to mark the 10th anniversary of Skyrim, the last ever Elder Scrolls game. R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Elder Scrolls. In peace. We knew you well. Too well. Uh, speaking of old games, one last news item we'll get to here this week. Uh, Kotaku reporting that uh, they have seen and heard some scuttlebutt that Rockstar Games is currently busy at work uh, remastering some of their old classic Grand Theft Auto titles. Uh, that's also a game franchise that sees a lot of time between titles as well. Although there was a period in the uh, early thousand, early two thousands, early to mid two thousands, where uh, the turnover time and or downtime between titles wasn't as great as it has been between the main series editions. Uh, so Rockstar apparently, according to Kotaku's reporting, is working on remastered versions of Grand Theft Auto Three, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, and Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Apparently, all three of these games are being remastered using the Unreal Engine and will be a mix of, quote, new and old graphics. Kotaku has also heard from one source who says that uh, they've seen a snippet of the game in action and the visuals reminded them of a heavily modded version of a classic Grand Theft Auto title and the interface for the games is being updated as well, but will retain the same classic style. 
No details have been shared about the gameplay, but Kotaku has heard that these remastered titles will be staying true to the PS2 era of Grand Theft Auto games as much as possible, end quote. And another interesting fact uh, that Kotaku has heard is that when these games are released, they will also... Uh, uh, you know, of course, be coming out to a number of platforms, all your, your PS4, your PS5, your Xbox One, your Xbox X slash S, but also the Switch. Yeah. Which would be a really interesting development, considering I think there's only ever been one branded, or one Grand Theft Auto branded game on a Nintendo device. Yeah, and that would have been Grand Theft Auto 3 for the GameCube. Well, maybe two then, because I was thinking of Grand Theft Auto Chinatown Wars on the, uh, was it DS or 3DS? Oh, yeah, I think that was DS as well. So, and, and yeah, and even still, Grand Theft Auto 3, it came out on the, on the GameCube, I want to say like a year, maybe two years after it had already been out on PlayStation and Xbox for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and it was a big deal because Nintendo didn't have that many M-rated titles on their systems yet, and they were just kind of just starting to go that way with the GameCube. So, yeah, what a time we're living in now. Uh, currently, uh, Kotaku is reporting and saying that uh, these remastered GTA titles uh, are looking for uh, looking towards a launch window of late October or early November. Uh, they'll be released on literally everything: mobile phones, Stadia, PC, Switch, as I said, and PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox X slash S. But uh, yeah, so interesting that uh, one of the big titles this fall or game releases this fall could be three old games. Yes. The uh, Grand Theft Auto Legacy Edition, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So keep an eye out for that. But uh, yeah, a Grand Theft Auto game, uh, especially the older ones, uh, a r- real rip and good time. And uh, those titles were pretty much stalwarts of the PS2 era and uh, really helped contribute to the uh, overall success of the PlayStation 2, I'd say, and the ridiculous sales figures it did, uh, eventually becoming the best-selling uh, game console of all time, but uh, hey, speaking of game consoles, I think that nicely dovetails into our last section of the show, which of course we will discuss some old things because it is the blast from the past, the portion of the show where we like to take some time and fet some things that are marking milestone anniversaries, and as always, they could be something from the world of video games, from the world of movies, uh perhaps even an album, some kind of television program, something that uh, we have come across that is celebrating a milestone anniversary that we think is worth talking about, worth fetting, uh, either good or bad. Maybe there's something that's uh, so good uh, it's really good, or something so bad it's good, or in the case of uh, this first item in our blast from the past, something that's so bad it's bad. <laughs> yes, uh, though I'll admit... There were parts of this movie that I did enjoy, and yes, it's a movie. And it's one that blows my mind that it's 15 years old already, because <laughs> I distinctly remember going to the theater with you to see this, <laughs> and the whole time we're like, what? <laughs> so this is this is a movie that was very, very highly hyped when it was first being hyped, before it was released, and as it was you know initially released, and... Yeah, I'm just going to say it was Snakes on a Plane. And in terms of, you know, early, you know, 2006 was sort of like 
early social media days and, you know, the, the earlier spread of viral content and memes and stuff kind of really started then. And, you know, one of the scenes from this movie did kind of go viral <laughs> at the time. Uh, it was a, you know, a classic Samuel Jackson scene, which, you know, if you haven't seen this movie, you probably don't need to see the whole movie. Just look for the highlights on YouTube. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. So Snakes on a Plane, uh, as you mentioned, starring Samuel L. Jackson, he is the biggest big-name actor in this movie. Uh, it's rounded out by some other complimentary actors. Uh, and Kenan Thompson these days is also kind of like one of the bigger guys, bigger names as well. But True to. He wasn't at the time. No, he wasn't. He was still, I think, very early in his SNL run, if he was even on SNL yet. Might not have been, although he's been on SNL for quite a long time. But no, he's been on SNL since two thousand three. Okay, he, yeah. Jesus. So, yeah, he's. I think he's actually technically the longest running SNL cast member, from what I, unless I'm you know mistaken. He's he's definitely one of the longest running uh, SNL members. Uh, no, Wikipedia says he is the longest running. Anyways, um, yeah, it was a weird movie. It was a goofy movie. Um, the only two things I remember about this movie were, you know, the Samuel Jackson line, I'm tired of these MF snakes on this MF plane, <laughs> which the the censored or um, the clean version of it was, I'm tired of these Monday to Friday snakes on this something. I don't think he said Monday to Friday twice, but it was like something ridiculous like that because, you know, they used to do specific clean dubs of these movies sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that. But I also remember Kenan Thompson's character, you know, there was like a thing where he was basically like a slacker type person just constantly playing PlayStation and the plane was about to go down and for some reason he's the most qualified person because he put like 2,000 hours into Xbox or I put 2,000 hours into PlayStation plane flying or something, some line like that, and then he manages to take the plane down and was, no one questions this. It's like there's nothing similar to a PlayStation controller to flying a plane. What? My recollection of Snakes on a Plane and the hype leading up to it, uh, I recall you and I being very hyped and excited for it, Yeah, uh, is that it was trying really hard to be a bad movie, like a a schlock B movie that is so bad it's good. Yeah. The problem is it was trying so hard. Well, there's not a problem with trying so hard. I think it was trying so hard, but consciously trying hard. It was trying hard consciously, but it also missed the mark on all of the things that, you know, so bad it's good movies need. Like, it, it needs more than just one quotable scene, it needs a lot of scenes. It needs a lot of one-liners. It needs a lot of ridiculous, you know, unrealistic fight scenes. It needs some sort of, like, thing to it. I think you can very easily contrast this movie with Machete. Mm -hmm. Because Machete is another movie that's so bad it's good. Mm -hmm. But it was another one that was consciously made to be that way. But it also pays tribute to all of those movies that came before it in that kind of exploitive fashion. Like, it's, you know, it's sort of like a Mexican black exploitation movie that was paying tribute to basically movies of the 70s and, like, the character himself of Machete, ridiculous. Like, the acting's not great, 
but that's not the point. The point uh, is bad acting. The point is ridiculous, goofy one-liners that no one would ever actually say in real life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over-the-top gun violence and stuff, like, that are, that's, you see injuries happen that are just highly unrealistic. And you see the way things re- resolve are, like, outrageous. This movie just kind of felt like a kind of flat, almost disaster movie. Yeah, and almost as though it didn't really have to try after it landed on the premise of snakes being aboard this plane and Samuel L. Jackson has to save the day. Yeah. Because there is not much more to the script than that. No. And also, there's the thing that kind of blew my mind was the scene where he said the fa- the actually the most famous line in the movie mm-hmm. was a reshoot that they did several weeks later once, you know, there was like some audience suggestion of like, well, why doesn't he say something like this? Then that's exactly what they put in. I thought that was funny, but why is that the best scene in the movie? The, yeah, the best scene in the movie wasn't originally in the script. Yeah, or in the movie, because they did a test screening before they shot that. Mm-hmm. They went back like weeks later after the movie had, been, had a cut already, like a rough cut made, and they showed to people just to get a test audience in front of it. And people weren't enthused. <laughs> there's something about, yeah, there's something about Snakes on a Plane where it was... Uh, being conscious and trying really hard to be a, a bad but enjoyably bad movie, and it didn't didn't work. Uh, I think maybe part of the uh, problem too is that they had seemingly maybe too big of a budget, or it was too big uh, uh, a movie, maybe done by a, a larger studio. Um, if you want enjoyably bad movies that know they're bad, I mean, you can look at other more recent disaster movies like a Sharknado or something like that, where they're fully aware of, you know, that they're bad movies and they're not trying to be anything but, you know, they're living in that space. The premise of uh, uh, Snakes on a Plane, I believe, is that there's some kind of uh, drug lord who's being transported aboard this flight. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is is the U.S. Marshal who's or air marshal who's helping transport uh, this drug kingpin. There's drugs on board, but there's also snakes on board. And uh, I I don't really remember beyond that. No, I don't either. Because Which, it was terrible. Yeah, not a great sign for your movie when, like, your story's forgettable. <laughs> oh, I do remember there was a scene where a uh, a male passenger went to the bathroom and uh, uh, was really standing up, relieving himself, and then a snake basically jumped out onto his uh, uh, member from the toilet. Yeah, great. Yeah. So there's that. And, yeah, snakes on a plane, uh, 15 years old, has not gotten better with age. <laughs> I think that is safe to say. You've seen it, if you ever see it once, you've seen it enough. And the other last thing I will say about Snakes on a Plane is, uh, uh, as you mentioned, you and I went to see it in theaters when it uh, came because we were jacked for it. I had a difficult time watching this movie because there's something about snakes on screen that makes my skin crawl and gives me the heebie-jeebies, as some people might react to, like, nails on a chalkboard or something like that. Well, Samuel Jackson himself apparently, like... This is also, it's kind of an interesting movie to talk about because there's a lot more, the stuff surrounding the movie is more interesting than the movie itself. (laughs) Which which is a damning indictment of the movie. Yeah, unfortunately, but Samuel Jackson had a clause when he was making this movie in his contract that he, he was to not, like, he would not come in contact with any snakes. Like, I think it was like a, 
like he had a clause preventing him from being, yeah, as Wikipedia says, he had a clause preventing snakes from being within eight meters of him. So he doesn't like snakes. Like, keep those things away from me is what his mantra is in terms of this movie. So, yeah, like, I don't, I don't think a dislike and or fear of snakes is kind of uncommon. And in this movie, a whole lot of these snakes also are CG'd, uh, computer animated into this movie and don't look that good either. Yeah, like, there's a mix of actual real snakes, but in some scenes, CG snakes as well, and they don't look good. No. Though apparently there were 450 actual snakes used in this movie. Oh, that's delightful. Yeah, so, to represent 30 different species of snakes, um, yeah. And then of course the Wikipedia article goes on to list all the different species that are meant. I don't care about that. It, that's too much detail. I don't need that. That, that's enough. Uh, neither of us here and a uh, few people, if any out there, are snakes on a plane super fans who need to know all that information. Uh, if you are one of them, good on you. Uh, we are not uh, amongst you and that's okay. But, uh, we'll move off snakes on a plane and go further back in time from 2006 and go all the way back to 1991. August 23rd, 1991, uh, that is the day that uh, uh, basically gaming took a step forward, went from the 8-bit to the 16-bit, when Nintendo released the Super Nintendo Entertainment System here in North America, and a uh, bit of a revolution at the time, too, because gaming was still so new. Yeah, gaming was new. Um, people's sort of like visual representation of what they thought video games could be was still relatively new, Though they kind of were thinking, if you go back to the very start of this program, Zelda 2 would have been a very good-looking game, I think, Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, back in the day. But that was about it. I mean, like, you saw the odd outlier where it was like, holy crap, this is super mind-blowing, but there's a limited color palette. There's Characters always look blocky to a point. If you're going to have, like, an image of a person, it would look very pixelated and bad, like... When I think of like any of the Arnold Schwarzenegger licensed games, like, like, um, yeah, whenever his face would show up, it would just look very like washed out and bad because it's like there's only what some small palette of colors, like 32 colors you could show at a time or something Mm -hmm. on the old NES. And that does not (laughs) give you very lush photo, lush photography. No. And doesn't really lend itself to like realism at all. So, but yeah, a lot of that was sort of just the limitation of what you could do with the system because of like, you know, you could only have eight bits worth of data, which to this day, I don't really fully understand what that means. (laughs) Like eight, I guess, you know, eight megabits, not megabits, eight bits of, I don't know, entire like code or whatever running the whole game, I guess. But then they doubled it with the Super Nintendo and it. Just, I, I distinctly remember the first time I saw a commercial for Super Nintendo and it had Super Mario World in it and I thought, holy crap, that game looks insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Super Nintendo did seem like, uh, a ridiculous step forward in yeah. gaming. A huge technological leap. I mean, the graphics, the sound, the games you could do, um, and also the controller too. Uh, compared to the NES, the Super Nintendo controller had, uh, tripled the amount of, uh, inputs, tripled the buttons. Yep. Like, you had an AB button, but now there's an XY button. And there are LR buttons. There's well. shoulder buttons? Whoa! 
Yeah. Mind-blowing. Again, we're looking at it, uh, you know, trying to be back in the time of 1991. And the controller was comfortable to hold in your hands. It actually was. I mean, the the NES controller was not. It's not a comfortable controller to hold. It's blocky. It it digs into your hands. It's got sharp edges. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still feels okay to play because, the, you know, it all boils down to the buttons and everything, but it's not a comfortable controller. Super Nintendo, to this day, is still a comfortable controller to hold. It has nice contours, fits in the hand well. I believe it's kind of tapered towards the bottom uh, as it sits in your palms. It's it's a nice controller for extended play periods. Yeah. Uh, which you would need because a lot of us spent a lot of time playing Super Nintendo back then. Yeah. Uh, but when it came out, some of the great examples of what the... Super Nintendo could do came out with the system. Look at Super Mario World and also F Zero. F Zero Pilot Wings, like the the launch titles were like it was pretty impressive. I mean, like a lot of different uh, variety of stuff that came out. I mean, if you look at the back of the box, I I remember like I mean, some things didn't really end up like carrying forward. Like I don't know if you know Bomberman became the big mainstay that people were wanting it to be at the time and things like that. But yeah, all the things you mentioned, like F zero still looks great. Oh yeah, certainly. And uh, try to think of, uh, you know, being back in 1991 and seeing F zero for the first time, a racing game that felt hella fast like that. Yeah. With, uh, the environments just whipping by you. Yeah. And the music sounded good. Like it was basically like, up to that point, including the Sega Genesis, the music had to kind of like come off of the sound chip, so you'd end up with that chiptune type sound. Mm-hmm. Whereas Super Nintendo could use sampled samples, you know, like much more like a uh, like a sampling synthesizer. So it would sound more like you know something like a real keyboard or something. So you could actually tell, oh, that's actually a piano. That's a guitar sound. That's a that's a drum, like that's oh that those are that's a string section, like you actually heard it, which was unreal at that point. Like no other video game system really had that without a, you know a lot of extra work and a lot of you know trickery and stuff having to be involved. Like it just was a thing on the Super Nintendo. Oh, absolutely, and uh, with the launch of the Super Nintendo, uh, naturally, it was the first one out, a lot of people gravitated towards it, but then came the launch of the Sega Genesis, and a real true war for home video game supremacy would follow. Yes. Like, it would split kids on the playground at recess. Yes. You and I were on different sides. Yes, we were. But, you know... (laughs) We were also kids and have since come around in the time in between to realize, no, there's no point. Yeah, it's all just corporate nonsense. But also, it didn't stop us from being friends back then either, because it's like, it was often more advantageous to have, not necessarily have friends, just to use them for a thing or anything, but it's just like, oh, I've got a Super Nintendo, so we can play these games. You have a Sega, so you can play those games. Like, So it'd be like, oh, let, let's play, you know, whatever... Sonic games are like, oh, if we want to play the good version of Mortal Kombat, mm-hmm. let's, you know, go to a Sega house and I can do that. Like it, Any sports games. Any sports games, the Sega version was usually better. But also, it, yeah, that's another, we don't need to get into the whole console yeah. war kind of thing necessarily no. too deep, but it was, uh, yeah, people talk about console wars now, but it's, it's not the same. 
Certainly not. No, I mean, the amount of content that is across both pla- both major or all major platforms is the vast majority of games. Yeah. Uh, it's only a minority percentage that, or a very small percentage of games that are going to be exclusive, but it certainly felt like back then, being someone growing up in it, it felt like truly there was a divide. Yeah, there was, because there was actually different, like, you couldn't play certain stuff if you didn't own a Sega. You couldn't play certain stuff if you didn't own a Nintendo. Like, that's just, that's how it was. Certainly. And even some versions of games uh, were developed uh, for the different platforms by different companies entirely. Yeah, and they were entirely different games. Like, the Aladdin game was not the same on either, like, any of the Disney games were not the same on either console. Like, the version of Lion King was different on Genesis as it was on Super Nintendo. Mm-hmm. I think Jungle Book as well? Yeah. Uh, well, all of them. Yeah. Like, they were all totally different, so you would get a different game. So, like, it's not even like you could share tips and tricks. So it's just like, yeah, if you're playing, if, if two people are playing, you know, the Nintendo version of Aladdin or whatever, yeah, sure, you could share tips and tricks on that there. But if you're a Sega person in that conversation, you're out. You are. You're not part of it. You are then having to talk to your own Sega people and uh, deal with them. But uh, And also, too, with the launch of the Super Nintendo came the idea of new consoles. Yeah. Like, you know, we now perhaps take it for granted and perhaps always have an eye cast towards what's the next system? What's the next system going to do? What's it going to feature and whatnot as we are now, you know, starting to be in... Uh, or approaching year one of the PS4 or PS5 era and year one of the Xbox X slash S era, but... Yeah, and people who are like, you know, parents now of children are our age, and we know, like, it's sort of like an established fact of like, well, if you want to play the better, newer games, you have to get the newer console. Like, that's just a thing that we understand now. Try being kids our age when this stuff came out. It was a struggle... I, I had a Nintendo. We played it a lot. I remember when Super Nintendo came out, it was hard to explain why it's different. It's like, well, can't you keep playing your current one? No, but there's new games on this new one. Aren't there new games for this current one? No, but you can't play some of these games on this current one. Why not? It's a different system. But they're both Nintendos. Mm-hmm. Well, they're both... What's, so, what? So, it's, it was this frustrating thing of like, can I just show you in the store? See, this is what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, the idea of iterative technology and iterative devices really was not commonplace back in 1991. No. Not in the way it is now, where we commonly, commonly accept that uh, our devices, be it a laptop, be it a phone, hell, maybe even a microwave or a smart fridge or something, has a very set life of maybe five to seven years, and you'll have to upgrade every so often with any sort of piece of technology. Uh, back then, we didn't really have that, and that's kind of what made the idea of the Super Nintendo so new, so rad, so, whoa, it's a new machine and we can do all these new things? Whoa, that's so wild and cool and kind of mind-blowing. And, of course, we've seen since that now it's just commonplace. It's part of the course. We accept it all, that uh, there's going to be new systems and uh, some games will just have to get the new systems to play because that's where they will be. But uh, So August 23rd, 1991, 
Super Nintendo Entertainment System comes out in North America, it goes on to sell a whole lot of units, many tens of millions of units, uh, has a good war with the Sega Genesis, and uh, uh, might be collecting dust on your shelf, in your basement, in your garage, somewhere. Uh, feel free to pull it out and enjoy it, or you can uh, uh, get that classic nostalgic feel by playing through the uh, Super Nintendo Classic Edition if you managed to grab one a couple years ago, or, you know, just find a friend who has one and still plays it. Whatever the case might be, it is still well worth checking out, digging out, having a nostalgic experience on it. it uh, and probably in a lot of cases, still works. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, it's been in a box for, or like in a, in a Rubbermaid bin for like the better part of the last five years for me, but I'm pretty sure that my Super Nintendo still works fine. Mm-hmm. Now there might be some games, some cartridges where the battery on board is starting to go. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's not super hard to change those these days. I mean, there's YouTube videos showing you exactly how to do it and it's not the worst thing in the world. Certainly not. But, uh, even so, Super Nintendo Entertainment System, 30 years old, advancing the medium of video games, uh, and also bringing with it a console war that further advanced the, the, uh, 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 I guess medium of video games and, uh, which then spawned a, would later spawn a, a whole other device called the PlayStation as well. Yes. But that's we'll, a, that's a story for another day. <laughs> it is indeed. But, uh, so the Super Nintendo, 30 years old, before that we spoke about the movie that was Snakes on a Plane. It's 15 years old. Uh, like I said, you see it once and you've seen it enough. Yep. But, uh, that about wraps us up for this edition of the arcade. We thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Uh, we hope you can join us again next time and let us know your experience with, uh, watching Snakes on a Plane or playing the Super Nintendo or doing both at the same time. Not sure how you'd pull it off. I want to hear how you do if you do. You can email us info at the arcade show dot com. Uh, or you can hit us up on the evils of social media. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are at the arcade show on both those platforms. And if you haven't already, sign up and uh, subscribe or subscribe someone else to our program. We are on Google Podcasts. We are on iTunes. Uh, you can find directly direct links to our pages on both of those platforms on our homepage of the arcade show. So until next time, good night, everybody. Good night.